1 Corinthians chapter 13, reading from verses 1 through to the start of verse 8. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Today's Bible reading is recognised even by non-Christians as one of the world's most beautiful and most moving pieces of literature. Uh, It'll often get read at a wedding. It featured at the royal wedding, no less, last weekend. And it's the sort of thing gets, that gets printed on lots of posters on, with pretty pictures on them to hang on our walls. Now, what do you think 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is really about? Well, after hearing it, you'd probably say, don't be daft, Michael. It's about love, of course. What else could it be about? That's why a bride and a groom delight in this splendid, almost lyrical passage. It connects with how we feel about our closest loved ones. It connects with how we feel romantically towards that special person who when we look into their eyes, we go all gooey inside. Uh, It connects with how we feel towards our closest family members, those ones who are connected to through blood and through shared history and community. It connects with how we feel about those people we really like, as opposed to our family. Um, It it connects with those people who we really like, you know, our our mates, our best mates, our closest friends, our cobbers, our closest companions. That's the sort of love that we know. That's the sort of love that we understand. But if our understanding of love and if our experience of love is limited to that sort of love that we feel... Well, we're never going to understand this love that Paul's talking about here. In English, we have one word for love, which confuses things a bit. I mean, like, I love my wife like I love a T-bone steak. What's that about? It's two completely different things. And so the lack of words in English confuses the issue a bit. But in the original Greek, there's three different words for love in the Bible. The Greeks may not have been very good at managing their economy, but they are pretty good at communicating. The first word for love was eros love, from which we get our word erotic. It's boy meets girl, girl meets boy. Boy falls in love with girl, girl falls in love with boy. That's eros love. It's a sexual attraction. The second word for love is phileo love. Uh, We describe it as a brotherly love. It's that love that we have between family members, the love that we have between good mates. It's camaraderie, mateship. That's filio love. But the third type of love is, well, it's very different to the first two. And it's this thing called agape love or agape love, depending on who taught you to pronounce Greek. The first two types of love, we direct towards particular people 
who we have feelings for. And so we might feel that love and go, yeah, I know how to love. There's people who I love. I know all about love. And we know the extremes of love. You know, I would give anything for that person. I I would back them to the ends of the earth. I would defend them to the ends of my life. I know all about love. But agape love is very different. Agape love is that love which will give of self and even drive to die for my enemy. You see, it's not a feeling. That's what makes it so very different. Agape love is an attitude and an act of the will. It's a love which has to be shown to all people regardless of how we feel about them. You know, when Jesus told us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us, that's the sort of love that he's talking about. Agape love. It's an act of the will. And it's a God-given attitude of the heart. And that's the sort of love that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is describing. It's the sort of love that God has for us. While we were still enemies... Of God, While we were still sinners, God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And God is love. You know, we could go through that passage and substitute the word love with the name Jesus, and it makes perfect sense. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not proud or rude. He is not self-seeking. He is not irritable. And he keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but he rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. See, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It has this ring of truth to it. But how does it sound if you put your name there? Instead of Jesus's. I I know it just doesn't sound quite so poetic with my name in there. It doesn't sound right at all. Uh, Michael is patient. Well, actually, I'll probably get a tick there. I am patient. That's something I can do. I'm patient. I just don't suffer fools lightly. Uh, Michael is kind. Can I add ish? Kind-ish? Like sometimes I'm kind. Michael does not envy. Ooh, sometimes I do. And sometimes I'm a bit proud. And sometimes I'm downright rude. I'm afraid I don't come up to scratch with that kind of love. This agape love is how God loves us. Before I ever deserved it, Jesus died on the cross for me. And before you ever deserved it, Jesus died on the cross for you too. And it's because of the cross that we can love. We can love like God loves. The Apostle John said we love because he first loved us. And the sort of love that John talks about in his letters is exactly the sort of love that Paul is talking to to us about here. But let's not get confused. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, though, is not actually about love. 
It's about spiritual gifts. And in the larger message of the letter, it's about relationships within the church. At the beginning of chapter 12, Paul says, Now, about spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant. And then he carries on the topic of spiritual gifts through chapters 12, 13 and 14. And this passage, it comes smack bang in the middle of it. Now, is that just because Paul had a senior moment sort of halfway through? He's teaching about spiritual gifts and then he sort of forgets what he's talking about and then talks about love for a while? No, not at all. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been learning about how spiritual gifts are given for the building up of the church. But we've also become very aware that all of Paul's teaching here on spiritual gifts was given because there were some in that church in Corinth who had gotten it so very wrong. They were a church divided. They didn't love. And even the way that they were using their spiritual gifts was unloving. And so Paul here touches on the temporary nature of spiritual gifts and the perm- he compares it with the permanency and the primacy of love. He tells them about all of these amazing spiritual gifts and then he says, and now I'm going to show you still a more excellent way. Love. Does that mean, okay, forget about spiritual gifts, they're not important, love is the only thing? No, he's just spent a lot of time telling us about spiritual gifts and he's going to continue to talk about them and their importance. But the key thing is they should be an expression of love, not something to big note ourselves with. Spiritual giftedness without love is worthless Actually, it's, it's worse than worthless. It's downright annoying. Is anybody other than me old enough to remember the old styrofoam water bottles and the old styrofoam ice boxes we used to have? I'm seeing a couple of chuckles. Some people remember them. Um, every now and then, back in the day, you'd see one of them on the side of the road all smashed to pieces. And I never knew whether maybe it's blown out of the back of a ute or is it an object of road rage. Um, I'm still not sure if the most annoyed that I've ever seen my dad was in the sheepyards or whether it was with a poorly packed styrofoam water bottle that wouldn't stop squeaking. Um, Now, some of you will know all about these things. You know, you'd have the car loaded up and you're heading off on holidays and everything's fine, but then you'd go over a little bit of a bump and, and the luggage would all shift and then all of a sudden... And you think that song went on and on and on and didn't stop. You try a styrofoam water bottle, they just go on and on and on. There's nothing more agitating. Now Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. There's nothing more annoying than than a reverberating, resonating, meaningless noise except for maybe a squeaky water bottle. And I reckon Paul would have talked about squeaky water bottles if he had them. No matter how spiritual our words might sound, no language or words can be compared with love. Nor could they ever be a substitute for love. 
Even the gift of prophecy, he tells us. You know, this is a gift that he's been telling us is the highest of spiritual gifts. And, and it's so important he's telling them you should be praying for it and asking God for it. Yeah, speaking the very word of God himself is nothing without love. Understanding the mysteries of God is nothing without love. Knowledge, even spiritual knowledge, is nothing without love. Even the strongest faith, you could have a faith that will move a mountain, but if you have not love, you are nothing. What about sacrifice? Can sacrifice be divorced from love? It sure can. The greatest sacrifice without love equals nothing gained. Verse 3 says, if I give away all I have, right, the greatest, if you give away all your physical possessions, if you give away every cent that you've ever earned, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, right, if you even sacrifice your very life, but have not love, I have gained what? Nothing. Nothing. When we give to the poor, do we give because we love? Or do we do it just because we're commanded to and we feel guilty if we don't? When we give our tithes and offerings to the ministry of the church, do we do it because we love? Or do we do it because we feel it's something we're commanded to do? In his other letter that we've got, the second Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Right? God wants us to be so filled with love that we'll give to the poor. He wants us to be so filled with love that we'll give to the ministry of the church. Even if I sacrifice my life, if I do it without love, I gain nothing. That's the difference, by the way, between the message of Jesus and the message of Muhammad. Muhammad says, kill those you hate, and if you lose your life while you're doing it, you'll get rewarded. Whereas Jesus says, sacrifice without love equals nothing gained. What's our motivation? Love or reward? Because if we sacrifice, if we give our stuff away for reward, guess what? There is no reward. But if we sacrifice because we love, that changes everything. The rewards are enormous. It's sacrificial love that's rewarded, not the sacrifice itself. Now, a lot of churches, they'll give an offering message just before the offering's taken up. And often the message will revolve around, give lots of money and God will repay you multiples of what you give. That shouldn't ever be our motivation for giving. That's a get-rich-quick scheme. Our motivation should be love. Giving without expecting anything in return. I love God. I love those who give up their secular jobs to preach the gospel, and so I give. 
I give cheerfully, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because I love. This passage is about spiritual gifts and relationships within the church. And first and foremost, the relationships between Christians should be, actually I'll strengthen that and say must be, a relationship of love. John, the Apostle John, he understood love very well. He used to describe himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Imagine if you, it, it, what have you got on your bio? Have you ever described yourself as the disciple whom Jesus loved? Yeah. What's your bio say? Would you ever say that? But somebody wants to know who you are. Tell me, tell me who you are. What are you about? Would you say what John says? I'm the disciple whom Jesus loves. What an amazing statement. What an amazing view. That's all of his worth. That's, that's, this is who I am. I'm someone who Jesus loves. And John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. What does that look like? If we have a distorted view of love, what does an undistorted view of love look like? No, it's not just a matter of words. We, we can't just tell someone we love them. Nor is it a matter of faking it. We can't just pretend that we love someone. This love is a God-given attitude of the heart and it's an act of the will. These two things go together, attitude and action. If I really love my brother or sister in Christ, it must be these two together. A matter of attitude and action. So, what does it look like? Firstly, love is patient. In the Greek, the word is makrothumiai. Macro meaning big, thumiai meaning suffering. Big suffering, long suffering. It doesn't, it's not talking about, okay, I'm patient, I'll wait until it rains. It means being patient with another person. Um, if I love someone, I'll put up with a lot of niggling. Uh, it, it's the opposite of being short-tempered. Secondly, love is kind. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Now, if that's how we're to treat our enemies... How do you think we're supposed to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ? Kindness. Thirdly, love does not envy. There is a fine line between eager striving and envy. In the Greek, the word is zeloi, um, from the root zealous. And, and that word can be used pretty much the same way we use our word zealous or zeal. Uh, and in the good sense, zealous means eager striving, right? So in chapter 14, Paul uses that exact same word 
to tell us to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, eagerly strive for these gifts, be zealous seeking these gifts. But if our zealousness stops being church-centred, because remember he told us that, that the purpose of the spiritual gifts are for the building up of the church, they're not for the building up of ourselves. And if we stop being zealous for the building up of the church, and if we become self-centred in our zeal, even for spiritual gifts, if we start seeking anything, even spiritual gifts, for our own purpose and to build ourselves up instead of building up the body, we've crossed over the line from eagerly desiring to envy. And love does not envy. Fourthly, Love does not boast. Those who love don't brag about themselves or about their gifts. Love is not arrogant or proud. Uh, one commentary I read puts it like this. Love does not cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. That's pretty much what arrogance is, isn't it? And, of course, arrogance is the one that sets oneself up against others. We inflate our idea of our importance and make others less important. Sixthly, love is not rude. It avoids every manner of unseemliness. Love acts with good order, good taste, courtesy. It doesn't sprout off with saying inappropriate stuff. Um, my wife at times, here's a confession, my wife at times chastises me for being tactless. Now, I know some of you find that very hard to believe, but apparently I am. Now, why does she chastise me? Because tactlessness is rude. It's not loving. Love is not self-seeking or selfish. There is no preoccupation with self. As we said last week, the spiritual gifts aren't given for the building up of self. They're given for the building up of the church. Nor is love irritable or easily angered. Some people very easily take offence. Uh, sometimes over the most minor issues and a, self, a fit of self-righteous indignation, we take offence. And we hold on to that offence as if it's my right to be offended. And somehow, I know this is a real strange thing, but somehow we, the one who's been offended tends to think, hey, I'm the one who's been offended here. And they have this crazy notion that that puts them on the higher moral ground. They've offended me. They're lower than me. I'm the one who's offended. Um, but it doesn't put us on the higher moral ground. Because when we're easily offended, that's not loving. Because love isn't irritable, it isn't touchy, it isn't easily offended. Remember right back at the very first one, love is patient. Love puts up with a lot. Nor is love resentful. Uh, a better translation is love keeps no record of wrongs. In the Greek it's actually an accountancy term, logazetai. Um, some of you might be familiar with a data logger. 
in this electronic age, a data logger is something that records data. So for instance, just over at the airport, there's an automatic weather station and attached to that is a data logger. It just logs the data. And so if we could access that, we could look back to this very day last year at this very time and see what the temperature was this time last year. It logs the data. It never forgets it. Um, perhaps a better example might be the account that I have at Ag Engineering. Uh, my wife would probably like to see the end of that account. Um, but I walk in there without my wallet. I pick up whatever I want. I take it to the front counter and there they record the items. And then without paying, this is a good bit, without paying, I just walk out the door and take those items with me. Bonanza. Great, isn't it, to have an account? But the thing is, those items, they haven't been forgotten. They've been logged. They've been scanned in and they've been added to my account. And they keep a tally of everything that I owe them. At the end of the month, I get a nice little email from Ag Engineering. And it doesn't use these words, but basically it says, pay up, buddy. And um, then you realise, oh, maybe accounts aren't quite so good after all. But how do we relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we compile a list of their every fault? Do we remember every little offence that's ever been committed against us? Or do we even remember every offence that they've committed against somebody else? What about if we tell them that we've forgiven them? Has that account actually been cancelled or do we hold that account open and do we still continue to remember and continue to keep the log of those things that they've done against us, even though we've told them that we've forgiven them? Do they still owe us? If so, we actually haven't forgiven them at all. Now get this, love keeps no record of wrong. And that's just as well, because in Hebrews we're told that when God forgives, he remembers our sins no more. Is anybody here glad about that? I'm glad about that. Now, if when you repent and ask God for forgiveness, if he forgives you of your sins, why should I keep an account of your sins? God's forgiven you. They're dealt with. They're gone. They're erased. If God doesn't build up a case against my brother or sister in Christ, why would I do it? If we don't forgive like God forgives, if we continue to keep accounts on others, our forgiveness itself stands in a position of grave jeopardy. The parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18, it scares the living daylights out of me. It terrifies me to not forgive my brother or sister in Christ. Uh, it, it tells the story of a slave who was forgiven an enormous debt. He had this enormous debt that just could never, ever possibly be repaid. And he asks the king for forgiveness and he forgives him. Right, the debt's written off. Now, of course, that's a picture of the debt that we owe God. And we ask God for forgiveness. There's no way that we could possibly ever pay him back. But he forgives us out of his grace. But then this slave, 
He's just been forgiven this great, enormous debt. And then he goes and he gets his fellow slaves and starts choking him and says, hey, listen, you owe me. You owe me. Pay up. And his master says, when he hears about it, he says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? And in anger, his master delivered him up to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That terrifies me. But if I love, there's nothing to worry about. There is no problem. Because love keeps no record of wrongs. Ten. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Strangely enough, some people delight in the downfall of others. Um, because it gives us a chance to take the higher moral ground. It's a bit of a pride thing. Um, some people aren't happy unless they can be against something. And some people are at their most zealous for God when they can be zealously against something else. Um, it's a strange thing, isn't it? We should be just zealous for God because he's so great and so loving and so forgiving. But sometimes we need something to be zealously against to get the fire in the belly. Um, and so they can become happy at the downfall of the other because in their mind it elevates them in their position of righteousness. Now we can see this sort of thing happening in politics all the time. Nothing gives a politician more joy when the wrongdoings of his opponent get revealed. And they get up on TV, oh no, we won't, we won't kick him while he's down. And behind the scenes he's going, you know, he's delighting that he's fallen. You know, in the church, we're not opponents. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And wrongdoing isn't something to be celebrated. It's something to be grieved. And so love rejoices in the truth. Love doesn't pretend. Love isn't into cover-ups. If I truly love someone, I don't just pretend that everything's okay between me and them. If the truth of the matter is that everything's not okay, then we have to make it okay. Love rejoices in the truth. It brings everything out into the open. But what about if the truth is bad news? What if we've gotten some bad news? Do we rejoice in the bad news? Or do we try to cover it up? Some people have the theology that they won't ever admit to anything bad because they see it as a sign of faithlessness. And the whole name it and claim it thing is an example of this. You know, if I ask for it and I believe it, then it's done. Um, you know, oh, I've asked for healing, therefore I'm healed. And and even though that person might get sicker and sicker, in faith I believe I'm healed. And so I tell everybody I'm healed. Nothing to see here. Move on. 
everything's okay. But the whole time they're getting sicker and sicker. Is that truth? Or is it a lie? Why does love rejoice in the truth, even if the truth is bad news? Because when we're truthful with one another, that's when love springs into action. That's when the church can be what the church is designed to be. A community of reconciliation. A community who are truthful with one another and confront the hard issues with one another. And in the grace of God, repair relationships. That's where the church can be a loving community that gathers around the one who's hurting to love them and to support them. Love rejoices in the truth. And of course, the ultimate truth is Jesus himself. Jesus said, I am the truth. Twelve. Love bears all things. That means it never tires of support. It puts up with a lot. It protects, it covers. It's sort of like a supporting roof structure. A roof structure is load-bearing. It takes the weight and it protects. Love bears all things. Number 13, love believes all things. Um, that's a bit of an unfortunate translation in the English Standard Version. Um, it's, it's, it's a true translation, love bears all things, but it makes it, sorry, believes all things, but it makes it sound like love is something which is very gullible. It'll believe whatever it's told. That's not at all what it means. A better translation is love never loses faith. Pistuo is the word. And that can be translated as faith, belief, trust. Love is always open to seeing the best in others. It trusts. It never loses faith. 14. Love never exhausts hope. And finally, love endures. Love never gives up. It always perseveres. It continues to pray even when our prayers seem to remain unanswered. It continues to love even, even when the response that we're getting back to our love seems to be one of hatred or bitterness. It continues to be patient and kind. It continues to seek the good of the other and it continues to forgive. Love just goes on and on. Love never ends. Wowzers, this love thing is enormous, isn't it? Where, where do we ever begin? How, how could I ever possibly begin to love with that kind of love? And as we, we sort of look at this, imagine what sort of church this would be if we were the sort of people who loved like that. If we loved each other like that and people saw that kind of love, how could we keep people out of here? We'd have to close the doors to keep them out instead of keeping you in. 
Jesus said to his disciples, they'll know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. That's what he's talking about. That sort of love. How can we begin to love like that? Well, the starting point is to receive love. We can never love like this. This is the love of God. We can only love the love of God that we've received. So we receive love from God and we love others with that same love. Next, we have to recognise that our feelings are feelings of imperfect love and perhaps even distorted love. And so we repent of our distortion of what love is. And we begin to love others like God loves us. We pray, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. The fruit of your spirit is love. That's, that's what it says. Love, joy, peace, patience. First one he lists is love. And so we pray, Lord, please fill us with your love. Overflow us with your love. May your love become an attitude of our heart. May it be that attitude inside of us which overrides all other attitudes. And then we make love to be an act of the will, flowing out from the God-given attitude of love that he's placed in our hearts. Let's pray. Our Lord, in the past have been times when we felt love and we've taken this as, yeah, we are loving. But in the light of your word this morning, it becomes so obvious that our concept of love at times can be so greatly distorted. Oh, God, forgive us. You have loved us, but we have failed to love. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. The fruit of your spirit is love. Please fill us with your love. Overflow us with your love. May your love become an attitude of our heart. May it be the attitude that overrides every other attitude of our heart. And Lord, help us to love you and help us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.